This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Manual strangulation with significant neck compression deep to the major right and left neck vessels in a low velocity, high amplitude, localized force that when applied mobile, non-ossified, thyrohyoid articulations deep to the carotid artery and jugular veins led to the unconsciousness in a matter of seconds and was lethal in a matter of a few minutes. Compression of the airway interfered with the flow of the blood to the neck head and brain with mechanical and chemical asphyxiation and or a combination of both. With damage to the larynx causing a hairline fracture or dislocation of the left thyroid cornu horn and bite marks on the tongue. Manual strangulation with significant neck compression of the neck resulting in a combination of mechanical and chemical cerebral hypoxia or anoxia. Associated with asphyxiation, vagal inhibition, vagal reflex cardiac arrest that slows the heart rate and leads to abrupt cardiac arrest or cardiac standstill occurring within seconds. Struggling reflected in the facial injuries, neck injuries, tongue bite marks, and external genitalia injury is associated with increased physical activity, which uses up available oxygen much faster. A second autopsy was strongly encouraged to Leslie Brill Meserol in the death of her daughter. Leslie raised the money to do the thing that no parent should ever have to do, exhume her daughter's body, put it on a plane from Buffalo, New York, to the office of Dr. Sylvia O. Cuparini in Los Angeles, California. Leslie's daughter may have made choices in her young life that others looked down their noses at, Falling in with the wrong crowd led to an addiction to heroin. Her addiction led to her becoming a sex worker. But neither of those things should matter when an ME gets a call of a body of a young woman, frozen, solid, naked, and upside down in a garbage bin on the east side of Buffalo. The first thing you're thinking is homicide, right? Not drug overdose? The medical examiner in Erie County, New York, didn't come to the conclusion above. Dr. Coparini came to that conclusion after the body was exhumed. Dr. Diane R. Verdes, the original ME, listed the cause of death as acute opioid overdose. Welcome to the True Crime Librarian. I'm your librarian and host, Ashley. Tonight, we are going to dive deep into this case that is only making a small splash in the giant pool of true crime. This isn't our typical case. Amanda Winkowski was just 20 years old when her body was found headfirst in a trash can across the street from Antoine Garner's house at 157 Spring Street, the last place she was seen. She was naked and frozen solid. This is any and everything that is not a drug overdose. When you hear hoofs, don't think horses, think zebras. Nothing about this case is normal. I was approached by Gavin Fish from the podcast Solve Crimes with Rick and Gavin, and he thought Amanda's case would be one to cover right here on the True Crime Librarian. He didn't have to sell me on this, a brief, and I mean 
Brief summary sold me. Leslie has been fighting for her daughter for 12 years to get justice. And I know my nerds can help. Warning, this episode contains graphic detail of murder, rape, and adult language. Listener's discretion is advised. If you feel any of this may be too much for you, please have someone listen with you or for you. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Good freaking evening, my true crime nerds, and happy anniversary to all of you out there. It's hard to believe that it's been a whole year since I started this, and I'm still here today telling you about the crimes I read about, and for some reason, y'all are still tuning in to hear it. So, if I'm crazy, you're all crazy with me. Seriously, though, thank you for being here, tuning in to even some of the most horribly covered cases listening to me be neurotic and talking about myself in an After Dark special, and pushing yourself through the cases that seem to be more chaotic as you try and put them in order than they were before Timeline was put together. I want to do something a little bit different this episode as far as spreading some of that true crime nerd love. These individuals saw something in me and went over to the truecrimelibrarian.com and clicked on that donation button. Shelly Dixon, you have been with the show from almost the very first episode, and you found something in myself and the production of the show that I can't imagine what it is, and it has made you go out and support me on so many other levels apart from just donating. I want to say thank you so much. I'm so happy to have you a part of not only my nerds, but my inner circle as well. Trail Welker, I don't even know where to begin. You supported this crazy dream of mine, helped me with my organization and building my brand, and you are more certain of my success than I am of my own. I love you, friend, and I'm so incredibly lucky to have you in my life, even if it took you a while to realize that I'm kind of awesome. Last but not least, Miss Natasha Wagner. You are one of my more quiet nerds, but when you do speak out on my behalf, you command attention. I'm so lucky to have a supporter like you amongst all of those who believe in me. And I promise the case you requested is coming, love. All of these people pulled from their heart to help keep the show up and running. And for that, I'm blessed beyond words. If you'd like to make it on the list of true crime nerds, all you have to do is recommend, review, or donate to the show. Recommending and reviewing only costs you a little time, but goes a long way to help a little podcast like TTCL. So keep spreading the word, and I'll keep moving forward with those cases you want to hear and those I can't get out of my head. Be sure to use that hashtag, the true crime librarian, so that I never miss out on thanking you for your support. Enough of this happiness. Let's get to what you all came here for. The true crime. Let me introduce you to tonight's case, Amanda Lynn Winkowski. She was born June 2nd, 1988, and was just 20 years old when her body was discovered naked and upside down in Buffalo, New York, in a rollaway trash can. Those who knew Amanda called her smart, beautiful, 
and determined. When she set her mind to something, there was no stopping her. To find her in that manner in the east side of Buffalo raises questions among anyone who has stumbled across this case, but what makes it so much more interesting? Amanda's death has been listed as an accidental heroin overdose. You know, the one that forces you out of your clothes, head first into a dumpster, completely naked in the blistering cold, harsh of winter in upstate New York. Tonight, we're going to start at the beginning with this case. And the further I dig, the more I'm convinced that the man initially thought to have killed her believes he's in the clear. But it's just a matter of finding the magic code word to extend his stay with the Department of Criminal Justice in New York State. In 2006, Amanda graduated from Niagara Wheatfield High School with a Regents Diploma. If you are outside of a state that, that has this program, let me explain it to you briefly. In order to obtain that diploma, a student is required to achieve passing grades on Regents exams in comprehensive English, any one of the mathematic courses, global history, U.S. history, any one of the sciences, and a language other than English. This meant that Amanda was super smart and had a great head on her shoulders. But while she was taking part in the BOCES or Boards of Cooperative Educational Services, Amanda got mixed in with the wrong crowd and it was a downhill slide. Amanda got caught up in drugs, her drug of choice, heroin. A drug so powerful, it can take everything you love and turn it against you before it takes your last dying breath. In the US, we are in the middle of an opioid crisis. Heroin is right smack in the middle of it. It's estimated that 2.1 million people in the United States are addicted to or abusing opioids today. Worldwide, that number grows astonishingly to 24 to 30 million people. This is gross mishandling. This is gross over-prescribing. This is the center of addiction. This is one of the worst drugs you could get your hands on next to methamphetamines. Amanda struggled with their addiction. Like all others who get a taste of it, eventually she had to turn to being a sex worker in order to feed that addiction. She put out an ad in an Art Voice magazine up in Buffalo, and it said, worth your wild 20-year-old hot baby, $150, and it had her contact info. That's it. No matter how you obtain your johns, being in that line of work proves to be dangerous. And for Amanda, it's that ad that led to a, her encounter with her killer. The thing with Amanda is, even though she struggled with her addiction and struggled with paying for it, her family, her mother, Leslie Brill Meserol, she led the way and stayed by her side, helping her trying to beat that addiction each and every time she came up for a breath. Her sister, Danielle, unfortunately was right there with her through the addiction to heroin, and she herself, she struggled with the same thing. Fortunately for Danielle, she's seen the other side. She has a family. She's beat the addiction. But every day, she wakes up and wishes Amanda could have beat it with her. Leslie did all that she could for Amanda to help get her clean. Amanda had found a place, uh, it's it offered Suboxone. It's a clinic and it works in the similar manner that methadone does for heroin users. It wards off all those nasty withdrawal symptoms, that sickness, that flu-like appearance. It latches onto those same receptors, making it easier to get off of heroin. And then supposedly it's easier to come off of Suboxone. Amanda, she was willing to try. She wanted to try. She was done. She needed a new life. And her first step was coming off of it and weaning herself off of heroin because going into rehab as an, as an addicted person, you have to meet a certain criteria. And I do believe it's 48 hours clean. Nothing. Well, the moment you stop ingesting heroin, your body goes into withdrawal. 
the moment you stop ingesting. For Amanda, 48 hours was a lifetime. She struggled. Every single one of us, had we been in her shoes, would have been doing the same damn thing. Amanda, she worried about money. But her mother, she pulled the funds together. She was going to get her daughter the help she wanted and hopefully beat this once and for all. Eventually, Amanda detoxed herself off of the heroin, hoping to get into the Suboxone clinic that she had found. Leslie was helping her daughter in every way she could, including with the clinic. At the time of Amanda's death, she had been clean maybe a few days, a week at the most. But she was determined to change the direction of her life. And I told you, people said that when Amanda set her mind to it, she could do it. Amanda worked as a waitress and a bartender down at this place called Cocktail Bob's. Through here, supposedly, according to this person, she met Adam Patterson, someone who had known Amanda for a huge portion of her life. Adam claims he met Amanda through Cocktail Bob's. Then he claims he met her uh, when he hired her for a sexual act. In reality, he's known her since she was four. The man that she called her father was friends with Adam. Amanda's mom was moving from their home where Amanda had been staying, and she didn't want to move with Leslie. She wanted to stay close. She had just registered over to the community college, Niagara County Community College. She was enrolled. She was going to start the spring semester. Her sister, Carol Ann, she's moving back from Vegas. And as soon as she got back, Amanda was going to move in with her. There were steps to Amanda and her determination to beat this once and for all. She had it laid out. She, she put herself in a position to where she couldn't back out. And for her, that meant that she couldn't leave the area. Otherwise, getting back and forth to college and her classes was going to become a huge problem. So, Adam agreed to let Amanda stay with him until her sister Carol Ann, or Carol Lee, came back from Las Vegas. And if I missed, I, I think I said Carol Ann, and I'm sorry, it's Carol Lee. When she comes back from Vegas, she's going to move in with her sister, and it's just a few short weeks. Adam admits later, you know, this, this stay turned into something bigger. She, at first, just moved in a little bit of stuff, and then the next thing you know, he, he's got two truckloads of her stuff in the house, and this is not what he signed up for, and blah, 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 okay? Now, according to Adam, because this was going to be a short while, he never charged Amanda rent, although the two seemed to hook up several times a week while she was staying with him. Many claim that Adam was Amanda's pimp. This information has not been confirmed, but I, I wouldn't put it past that there's some sort of truth to that. He's not an innocent man. Adam very adamantly denies that he introduced Amanda to any of her Johns as she was a sex worker. But those that say he was her pimp said he did so as a way to recoup the rent that she wasn't being charged. This is where things are going to get a little fuzzy with this case because we only have hearsay from Adam on what happened that night and he's proven to be nothing more than a freaking liar. Let's start on the evening of December 5th, 2008. This was the last time, this is the last day, anyone saw Amanda alive. Around 5 p.m., she asked Adam to take her to East Buffalo to meet up with a guy named Justice. His given name, Antoine Garner. He was at 157 Spring Street. Those who know Antoine know he dealt drugs. What he didn't deal was heroin. So what Amanda was doing over there, we'll never know. Antoine's not saying anything and Amanda's not here to tell us what happened. According to Adam, he denied wanting to take her over there at first because he didn't want to be involved in her falling off the wagon. And doing drugs, he didn't want to be any part of her sex worker job. However, once Amanda said, that's fine, I'll call my sister Danielle, he flips gears, 
and he agrees to take her. Why? He later says he didn't want Leslie to think he was contributing to her bad habits. But when she mentioned Danielle, he agreed to take her because he knew when the sisters got together, they tended to get high on heroin. And with Amanda being newly clean, he didn't want her to fall back into that bad habit. So, so knight in shining armor, right? It's bullshit. When the two pulled up at 157 Spring Street, Amanda got out of the car and told Adam she'd call him when she was done. All of this taking less than an hour. According to Adam, once Amanda closed that door, he left. At 6 p.m., Amanda texted she would be right out. Then another. She needed more time. And another. She would call Adam in an hour. At 7.35, Adam waited outside of 157 Spring Street for Amanda to come out of the house. This is the time she indicated that she would come out when she called. What Adam didn't know is that by the time he got the call from Amanda, she was already dead. The voice on the other end was somebody else. At 8.30 p.m., Adam pulled away from the curb on Spring Street, leaving Amanda behind. He never once got out of the car and knocked on that door. He sat at the curb while Amanda went through horrific pain, all because he wanted a piece of the money. He left her behind. The girl he's known since she was four. He left her alone. Back at Adam's, he brought Amanda's purse in and left it on the coffee table next to the sofa that she had been sleeping on while living with him. Come 10 p.m., Leslie calls Adam because Amanda's not answering her phone. She wants to talk to Amanda. According to him, he told her that something was wrong because she wasn't answering any of his calls or texts, and that is why he left the house in East Buffalo. From there, it gets a little fuzzy because Leslie's the type of mom that if Adam would have told her that, there's no way in hell she would have waited around for somebody to confirm that they haven't seen Amanda. Knowing what her daughter was striving for, step back and let this guy tell her something was wrong, but not do anything about it. That's not who she is. That's not what she does. That's not what any mother does. On December 6th of 2008, Danielle, Amanda's sister, supposedly calls Adam, according to Adam, and tells him that Amanda has been seen down at Cocktail Bob's around 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock that evening. And suddenly this weight of guilt is lifted off of his shoulders. Poor pitiful him, right? On December 8th of 2008, Adam decided, I need to go down to Cocktail Bob's. I haven't seen Amanda. I haven't heard from Amanda. I don't know what's going on. Since he still couldn't get a hold of Amanda on the phone and see if he could figure out what was going on, he decided, eh, well, we're going to drive down there since she keeps ducking out on me. Well, according to Adam, he talked to the bartender who was filling in for Amanda and learned not only had she not been in, nor had she called in to say why she wasn't coming. Nobody had heard from Amanda from about 6 p.m. December 5th of 2008. No one. It's at this point, Adam says, that he recognizes something really wrong. So he calls Leslie and asks for her to meet him at, her, at his house. Well, Leslie's she's done. She's, you know, she's acting now. According to Adam, she's acting now what, what she would have had he told her the same damn thing the night that Amanda went missing. The cops are called and they meet them and take report. Then they head over to 157 Spring Street. And I, when I say they, I mean Buffalo PD, Leslie, and Adam. Now, it's through the grapevine and my talks with Gavin um, that Leslie made Adam do this. Because when you're going through all of this, this um, going through his statement and then his revised statement, because he goes back in later and gives a revised statement, because 
Oops, I forgot my semen's on her, and I don't want to get in trouble, right? Convenient, right? So, according to Adam's statement, this is how things are going down. Now, whether this is exactly what happened step by step, we'll never know. What I do know is that sorry piece of crap left her without getting out of his car and walking up to that door, knocking on it and demanding to know where she was. She was supposed to be out within minutes. She had another appointment at 6.30 across town. There's no reason she would consistently kept putting things off. Had he been a man, that's what he should have done. But he didn't. He waited for Leslie to call the police. He waited for Leslie to take them to 157 Spring Street and watch PD interview three different people from inside that home. All three claim Amanda was never there. And she and they were extremely adamant that she was never there. Adam claims that officers searched the house and Amanda was nowhere to be found. However, I think that if they would have, they would have not only found Amanda, there would have been so much more evidence to prove that this was everything and anything but a drug overdose. But then again, the person who is telling us this friggin' story, he can't tell, well, he can't pour warm bits out of the boot with the instructions written on the bottom. Tell you that much. All of this comes from the voluntary statement that Adam gave police on December 9th, 2008. He would go back, revise that statement because the original version left out the fact that he and Amanda had been sexually active during her time living with him and up to minutes from the moment she went missing. Convenient for a person who's not guilty, right? On January 9th of 2009, Amanda Lewinkowski had been missing for 35 days. 34 days, excuse me. Before she was found naked, head first, and completely frozen across the street from 157 Spring Street in the rollaway dumpster she was found in was the neighbor's trash can that was reported missing the day after Amanda disappeared. The neighbor to Antoine Garner, or Justice, she called December 6th to report her trash can missing. Any of you who have a roller raid dumpster knows extreme, how extremely important it is to, to hold on to that thing and never let it out of your sight because if it's gone, you have nowhere to empty your, ho your house trash. We don't have dumpsters and alleyways anymore. So this was a big deal. Now here it is, January 9th, 2009, her trash can is across the street tucked into the corner section of a church with the dead body of a 20-year-old girl. Here's where shit gets fucking interesting. And I don't normally use a whole lot of foul language, but the more I pour over this autopsy, the madder I get. And we're going to go into depth on these two different autopsies next week, but I want to touch on it a little bit because it makes me that mad. Amanda's body was removed from the scene and taken to the Erie County Medical Examiner's Office. Since the state of Amanda's body was frozen solid, including internal organs, including urine, including feces, including all body fluids, solid, they left her body out overnight to thaw so they could perform an autopsy and issue a cause of death. The proper protocol, Gavin has spoken about this on his YouTube channel, Gavin Fish, and I'm going to put the link in the description of this podcast because if this catches your attention like it did mine, you're going to go gobble up everything Gavin has put out and crave more because how can somebody let this happen to a young girl in our country? According to Gavin, the proper procedure would have been to place Amanda into a cooler and slowly bring her temperature up to above freezing. 
This way, it prevents the outside of Amanda from decomposing rapidly as she thaws, but the inside of her stays frozen. It's like freaking nuking something in the microwave. It's hot on the outside, but freezing in the middle. There's a proper way to do this. In Erie County, they start off by screwing the whole damn thing up, but just eh, leave her out. We'll, we'll do it tomorrow. This meant that all the evidence that was on the outside of Amanda's body was decomposing at a rapid rate. It's coming to temperature of the room, which is not just barely hovering above freezing. No, not in the harsh winter of upstate New York. It's, just, it's certainly not set at 34 degrees in that office, I guarantee you. Now, while this is all going on at Erie County Medical, we have Buffalo PD doing exactly what they should be doing. And they're investigating this. And you want to take a guess who is at the top of their suspect list? Well, that's Justice or Antoine Garner, whichever you know him by. Apparently, those fighting for justice for Amanda and myself, we're not half bad at deducing the evidence down and capable of looking in the direction to where it is all pointing. Antoine Garner, his front porch, his living room, his bedroom, where the out-of-art voice was laid open, and there was Amanda's ad. Yeah. So, apparently, we're not too shabby at our, you know, hobby. So, let, let me stop here. We're going to take a second and let me introduce you to Antoine Garner. Antoine Garner was born June 5th, 1986. That makes him 35 years old this year. You can send him well wishes if you'd like, courtesy of the Department of Justice in New York State, or we can take a moment to celebrate his birthday. Anyways, now that that shit is over, let's get down to a little bit about Antoine. Antoine is a big guy, and even in high school, he was a big guy. He stood six foot three, weighed 252 pounds in high school. This is where his first sexual assault happened when he grabbed a 14-year-old freshman girl, picked her up by her throat, slamming her into either a wall or gate. It's not completely clear. And then sexually assaulted her. You know, he has to have some kind of fear in order to perform. When someone came into the locker room and told him that coach was coming, Antoine dropped the girl and took off. He was eventually found and they arrested him and charged him with the assault. The second time this occurred, he was a juvenile still. The only reason that we know anything about this assault is it was a footnote in another case. The next time Antoine Garner assaulted a woman, her name was Celeste Arisi. This happened on October 18th of 2008. Celeste has been very vocal with her interaction with Antoine, and she told police when she reported her assault that if they did not arrest him, he was going to kill someone. Guess what? He already had. According to Celeste, she was lured to an abandoned home on Myers by a man named Jason and another man named Victor. Victor? Well, he's Antoine Garner. This was on the promise of partying. That included other people besides the three in the vehicle and some cocaine, which Antoine was known to do. Now, once the three got to the home on Myers, it was only Celeste and Victor that went into the home because Jason said, well, I got to go get some more beer for this party. Once inside, Victor leads Celeste into the home before coming up behind her in the kitchen and choking him with his arm. From there, he proceeds to sexually attack Celeste, raping and sodomizing her. Celeste is very open with her recount, and I have not heard it personally. Um, I don't know if I could be strong for Celeste as she lets the story out. I'm not, I'm just, I'm giving you bare bones of her story. Just simple words that were spoken in her statement. And I already can feel the tears in the back of my eyes because how could somebody willingly lead a woman to a man knowing the only intention was to sexually assault her? And that's what Jason did. Why he did this for Antoine? 
I'll never know. My speculation, and I shared it with Gavin, was he owed Antoine, and this was one way of paying his debt. And until somebody tells me different, I can't imagine any other reason why some man would be okay leading a woman into something vicious like what Celeste went through. Antoine was charged and arrested for the sexual assault and strangulation of Celeste after the death of Amanda. At this point, he had already killed. However, the jury, they apparently did not find Celeste credible as Antoine was acquitted of her attack. He can never be tried for this crime again. We live in a country with one little loop. Double jeopardy. You can literally walk out of the courtroom after being acquitted of a crime, take two steps down the stairs, walk up to the podium, and announce that you are exactly the one who sexually assaulted and uh, Celeste, and there's nothing that can be done. Now, don't get me wrong. We've got some pretty powerful people. We have some pretty smart people in the legal system, and I'm sure they would have nailed him with something. But as far as for the charges he was brought against with the assault, and I'm sure it was of, of a increased charge due to his violence, that never can happen again. This is not a justice system. Regardless of her past, her present, or her future, she was a woman who was attacked in this country and a jury of her peers, men and women, failed her by letting her attacker go free. This is not okay. We do not settle. She has a risky path and Gavin says this best. Certain people in life take different risk. For Amanda, she took bigger risks than I do. For Celeste, she took bigger risks than I do. Does that mean she deserved what happened to her? No. Does that mean that her body betrayed her with the, the constant need for a high by getting into a car with a person she didn't know? No. Antoine Garner is probably the worst person I can think of in this moment that did not have like this disgustingly gross amount of bodies, right? He's not a serial killer. We he's not he's not as I guess lethal as people have covered on TTCL. And that's okay. But the fact that he can talk other people into providing him victims, that's what makes him dangerous. That's what makes him violent. And that's what makes him a piece of shit. In June of 2011, Antoine Garner raped and strangled another woman, an unnamed victim, 43 years old. At this point, he was six foot four, 347 pounds. He is a big boy. She stood five foot four, weighed 135 pounds. There's no comparison. She admitted to smoking cocaine seven hours prior to the two agreeing on a sexual act in exchange for 20 bucks. During their encounter, if that's even what you want to call this, he lifted her by her neck before sexually attacking her. She woke up to Antoine on top of her as she lay on her stomach, and he told her she was going to learn the hard way. When she tried to escape, Antoine hit her with a ceramic ashtray, cutting open her head. Eventually, the victim escaped the home and made it to the neighbor's home before collapsing onto their porch and 911 being called. Antoine Garner was convicted of strangulation and assault. In 2013, Antoine Garner pleaded guilty to three counts of third-degree rape and three counts of criminal sexual act for the raping and sodomizing of a 16-year-old girl in December of 2008 till January of 2009. Time frame sound familiar? Yeah. It's because Amanda went missing December 5th of 2008. 
She was found January 9th, 2009. It's during this time with Leslie and her family searching for their missing daughter, sister, friend, family member, that Antoine was raping and sodomizing a 16-year-old girl. Enough so that she eventually ends up pregnant by him. In 2011, she's 19. She decides she's going to file paternity suit against Antoine, seeking child support for the child he fathered during his time as he assaulted her. Well, guess what? Investigators and attorneys aren't dumb. They can do a little bit of math. She's under the age of consent. That's statutory rape, no matter how you look at it. Here's the thing about statutory rape. It can be a good charge. No girl should ever be able to say yes to sex with an adult man before she's of age. There's a lot of manipulation that goes on in conversations between teenagers and adults to get them to do what you want them to do. It's never okay. But at the same time, this is probably one of the most abused laws in our system. Because a mom and dad hate that their 17-year-old daughter is hooking up with an 18-year-old boy. Well, let's ruin his entire freaking life by pressing statutory rape charges. Yeah, you're convicted of statutory rape. You have to register as a sex offender for the rest of your life. You're not violent towards small children. You didn't take advantage of a younger family member. You had a girlfriend who was a year younger than you. So there's the good and the bad. This time, it's good. Antoine Garner, he deserves more than third-degree rape, I can tell you that much. We know of five separate times that Antoine Garner was strangled, women or girls, as he raped and sodomized them. Five times. It should not have taken this long to put his ass behind jail. It shouldn't. He should have been sitting in that penitentiary long before he had a chance to meet Amanda. But our justice system failed. A jury of his peers didn't find him guilty. It seems that he cannot get off with a female without the fear he inflicts by choking them, watching them gasp for air, and feeling their shriveling lungs. The question is, did Amanda suffer the same fate as these five women? There's no doubt in my mind. Next week, we will get into the autopsies of Amanda with more in-depth look, but let's just say it wasn't Antoine Garner's semen identified inside of Amanda. His DNA is located on her, but it wasn't his semen. My fear is that small frame couldn't withstand the attack of this big, six foot four, 357 pound man, long enough for him to get his rocks off and her to walk away beaten and battered. There's a part of me that says, I hope she didn't feel anything. Nothing. Was Antoine Garner, the man with a lengthy past of committing the same violent acts that it appears Amanda Winkowski went through, ever make it on the radar of Buffalo PD? Well, this question doesn't have black and white answers. It has gray areas. It has politics. That's a big word, right? Easy to pronounce, but a big word. The right suit, the right person, the right name can get you out of anything. It's unfair, right? How many of you know somebody who could get you out of anything? I'm going to tell you right now, I don't. There's not a person I know that could let me get away with what Antoine Garner has gotten away with his entire life. By the way, he's sitting for 18 years in New York State Department of Justice. Here, let me just break this down for you. He was convicted of rape in the third degree. That's a classy felony. He was convicted of criminal sexual acts 
in the third degree. That's a class E felony. He was convicted of strangulation in the second degree, and that's a class D felony. And finally, he was convicted of robbery in the first degree, which was class B felony. He's currently serving 18 years. Amanda barely got over that. She barely got 20. And this man will walk out at the age of 40 and think he's gotten away with it. But not if we can help it. BPD, they're just as smart as we are, if not smarter. They put together the same puzzle pieces I've outlined for you tonight. He was in their crosshairs. But see, Buffalo PD has more hoops than other PDs when it comes to arresting an individual. We've seen cops. We all know how it goes. You violate a crime. You commit a crime. You break a law. If it's bad enough, your ass is going to jail. Now, it's not up to the cop to make sure that there's something for the attorney to convict you on. The DA's office, that's their job, right? The cop's job is probable cause, right? Okay, so the DA's job is to take all the evidence that the cops collected during in their investigation, line it together in a put it all in a box, wrap it in pretty paper, put a nice little bow on it, and they're going to use it to convict beyond reasonable doubt, right? There's, there's two different agendas here, okay? So investigators, they don't have to make sure that's what you have. Your job as the DA is to make sure that what was collected will provide the conviction. However, in Buffalo, that's not how things work. There's two different agendas by separate department, but with Buffalo and an unspoken agreement with Erie County District Attorney's Office, the DA tells the BBD when and if they can make an arrest. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Antoine Garner was there. He fit the evidence. It led directly back to him until Dr. Verdi's inner Emmy report or autopsy came back. Once she ruled Amanda's death an accident by acute opiate intoxication, the DA's office shut down BPD and their investigation into Antoine Garner. This piece of crap, for whatever reason, and believe me, Gab and I have discussed this more than once, and we could point fingers but there's I's that need dotted and there's T's that need crossed before we can do so. He's literally gotten away with murder thanks to that unspoken policy between BPD and Erie County DA. Now, when the district attorney was questioned about the similarities between Amanda's case and those of the details that convicted Antoine and gave him his one-way ticket to New York State Prison System, he had this to say. When I have enough evidence that is admissible in court to prove a crime has been committed, we will prosecute. Unfortunately, under New York law, proof that the defendant may have committed one crime, whether it is an assault or rape, is generally not admissible to prove that he committed a separate crime, such as homicide. End quote. This is true no matter what state you're in. Nine times out of ten, when you're looking at a crime, and, and one big, like homicide, it's very rare that you can pull up the arrest history on the defendant and, and say this out loud in the courtroom. Most judges prohibit that because at that point you are creating an unbiased jury. They're hearing about all these awful things that the, the defendant did. And if he's capable of doing those, he's certainly capable of 
escalating into homicide, right? So that is true no matter what state you go to. But where you're wrong, Mr. DA, is my police department doesn't need your approval to make an arrest when the evidence lines up. My medical examiner doesn't issue a cause of death prior to a toxicology screen coming back. My police will investigate a 20-year-old female headfirst, naked, frozen in a trash can as a homicide and not as a drug overdose. These are two separate agendas and the district attorney made it his agenda and only his on when and if he will ever bring up charges against Antoine for the death of Amanda Winkowski. Now, here's the problem. As long as Amanda's death is, is listed as an accident, even though at the very beginning, that big, long medical jumbo blech, lingo I read to you, that is the manner of death listed in Dr. Comparini's autopsy from L.A. two years after Amanda's death. It was evidence two years after this girl was found, that she had been part of a homicide. Whatever happened in that room with Dr. Verdes, let's just say some things were left away. There were decisions made that were left out of certain people's hands. There's a big ass question mark. Who issues a cause of death before a toxicology screen comes back. Especially once you receive that toxicology screen, you realize there's no heroin in your victim's body. The way that we are going to get through to DA Frank Savita, or I'm not even sure if he's still in office. Honestly, I didn't even take the time to look that up because that's how bad it pissed me off. It's clear that the policy in place needs to change. But before we can get traction in that changing of the policy, before we can get traction in Amanda's case, before we can get traction in convicting Antoine Garner, we have to start somewhere. So let's start with the autopsy and getting Dr. Verdi's version of Amanda Winkowski's autopsy thrown out and replaced with either Dr. Coparini's or maybe Dr. Kenneth Clark's autopsy when and if those funds are raised. This brings me to my next point. If you head over to treatedlikeTrash.com, you can see all the documents that I've seen and what Gavin has seen, and you can join Amanda's army. Gavin and Rick have called out for Amanda's army to come in and help them for a few things during their investigation. And for him, it's still ongoing. You can sign up and you can donate your time and it's, that's amazing, right? If you feel inclined, there's t-shirts you can purchase. They're the same color of the trash can Amanda was found in. They have Amanda's face. They have treated like trash. This money goes into raising for the legal funds of Amanda. Currently, they're looking to exhume Amanda for a second time. The injuries on Amanda's body could prove even further that her death was anything but an accident. Like I said, next week when we get into the autopsy a little bit more, we'll talk about it. But tonight I'm asking you to go over and help Gavin out with his website with raising the money for Amanda with whatever it is you can give because Leslie's been fighting for her daughter for 12 to 13 years. There's justice for Amanda out there. We just need to keep shoving the proof that is a homicide into those lawmakers face in Erie County. Tonight I've introduced you briefly to this case. This isn't a long anniversary episode, 
My episodes are usually longer and I agree. This anniversary episode, I needed to dip your toes into the pool of what we're fixing to get into. This is a case I will continue to follow because it's still active. This is not your traditional true crime case. It's really not. There was a white girl in the inner city who ended up dead and a bunch of lawmakers and people of power have swept it under rugs and hoped that her family wouldn't come out of the woodworks. Wrong girl to do it to because Leslie, she's going to keep fighting for her daughter. Danielle is going to keep fighting for her sister. Carol Lee is going to keep fighting for her sister. And as long as Antoine Garner never serves a moment for the death of Amanda Winkowski, we don't have justice for Amanda. As long as Adam Patterson and his lying little self walks free, we don't have justice for Amanda. I've done a lot of straightforward talking tonight. Because I know that if I veer off of my notes from the show... It's going to get ugly, and I'm going to use language that normally I don't use. This case is a mother's worst nightmare. I have a daughter that is very close to Amanda's age. I know that if she was in that position, I would be Leslie. I would sell everything I could. I'd raise the money I could. I would fight the people who make the laws because my child is not a statistic. She is a person, and I don't care whether or not she had an addiction that you are not okay with. I don't care that she had a profession that you are not okay with. We are not here to judge. Many of us have done things that we're not proud of to make it to the next paycheck, and that's okay because at the end of the day, you know tomorrow you can change that, right? And that's exactly what Amanda was doing. She had been on this slippery slope. It was fun for a little bit. She was still young. She was 20. Changing her life. She'd have had 40, 50, 60 years to have a whole new life. Until she walked in to 157 Spring Street. That changed for her that night. And whether Adam pushed her there, that's a different story as well. You're not going to convince me of anything else. I think he did. I think he used Amanda and had sex with her when he wanted because he didn't charge her rent and he held that over her head. I think that he put her in positions where she had to perform more and more sex in order to get more and more money to suffice him as she stayed those few weeks waiting for her sister to move back. I think that... The entire Erie County medical examiner team failed her. I think that the district attorney's office failed her. I think the people who were there that night at Antoine Garner's when Amanda walked in and slapped money down on the table looking to make a buy failed her. Because the justice system failed to put Antoine Garner behind bars long before he should have crossed paths with Amanda. I don't... Generally, cases don't affect me like this. Generally, I'm pretty straightforward. I give you the details. They're not always the best. I probably don't deliver them in the most tactful way. But that's the case. I give you it all because good, bad, ugly, it's the case. The thing with this one is I can only give you so much because I can only take so much. You are more than welcome to go digging for this case. You're more than welcome to go find the details that I did not provide you with each of Antoine's assaults. Um, I think knowing that he sexually attacked women, I think knowing that he liked to strangle women, is suffice to show you what kind of human being he really is. I don't think he should ever see the light of day on the other side of the fence again. I don't think that he could change. I think that 
unfortunately, the way he was brought up, where he was brought up, and the only skill he really knows how to do is going to come back to him once he steps foot on the other side of that fence. And I'm terrified for the next girl that he comes across. But it can be stopped. If our voice is loud enough, it can be stopped. If the wheel gets squeaky enough, it can be stopped. I told you, and I've kind of been teasing everybody with this case, that when I came back, it was a hell of a case. And I'm not kidding. Let's not make Leslie fight another 13 years for her child. Let's raise the money. Let's get a, another autopsy done. Another one proving that she was murdered. Not that she ingested heroin and overdose because that sure is shit not what happened. And let's get some traction. Let's get something. Because Amanda will get justice. But for Leslie, I just want it to get quiet for her. Because she went through something no parent should ever have to. Head over to treatedliketrash.com, look around, look at the case, look at the files, look at all of Gavin's YouTube videos, get on and listen to Solving Crimes with Rick and Gavin on your podcast and follow each episode listed, Treated Like Trash. He is literally investigating this in real time. He gets updates out as soon as he has an update to provide. We're going to keep covering, and next week we're going to get a little bit more in-depth with her autopsy, so join me, because I'm so excited for this season. I've got a few cases lined up, and I promise you, it's going to be one hell of a ride. Amanda Winkowski was just 20 years old when she walked through the front door of 157 Spring Street. She didn't know that the click of the door behind her signified the end of her life. She had an illness, one that she was sick of harboring, one that she was ready to shed, but the claws of heroin were dug deep into Amanda's core, and the monster was relentless on getting what it needed to survive. At the end of the day, Amanda was a beautiful young girl with plenty of days in her future. She was a friend, a sister, a daughter. She was a human who made risky and difficult decisions, but what happened to her behind that door that evening of December 5th is not what defines her. What should is she was making small steps that would create giant leaps in her life. She was going to be more than another statistic that fell into the dark world of drugs and sex work. Antoine Garner can present himself any which way he'd like. According to his pen pal program profile, he has turned his life around. He's been drug-free for seven years. This has to be by choice if we are to believe what he has provided us in his version of black and white. He is arming himself to be successful as possible when he walks through the front gates of prison. He's going to get a second shot at life. But he made no qualms about taking away Amanda's second shot. He was sated after her attack. It gave him all that he needed to be sexually satisfied. He didn't blink an eye that it cost her her life. He didn't blink an eye when his neighbor's trash can came up missing, so he had a place to put her body. He didn't blink an eye when BPD showed up on his doorstep with Leslie and Adam in tow. He didn't blink an eye when he rolled the trash can across the street to a church and tucked the trash can behind a brick wall for her body to be discovered. And he didn't blink an eye when her body was rolled away in a body bag. To this day, he sleeps soundly knowing her death is not on his shoulders. For now. 
I want to thank you all for joining me tonight as we crack open a case that seemed to have been signed, sealed, and delivered until the right medical professional came along and stirred the pot. Dr. Coparini held on to the values of her oath and was led by what Amanda's body was telling her and not some politician, not the voters' opinion, and sure as hell, not some unspoken law. As always, I leave you with one last line. Every moment of your life is a second chance. Much love, the true crime librarian. <laughs>